This is A Word Fitly Spoken, my words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. Our guest today is Adam Kuntz, and we're here to talk about CFW Walther's pastoral theology, particularly what he has to say about the preaching task. How's it going, gentlemen? Really good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Everything everything good out in uh, the lovely Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? <laughs> of course it is. It always is. But yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's really it's really great. I, I sometimes explain that if you grow up in especially eastern Pennsylvania, you naturally believe that God loves mankind because the weather is mild and the earth is fruitful. And then you grow up in the north and you have a, a firm appreciation of the wrath of God, so... <laughs> You know, either way, you know how I know we are um, totally influenced by uh, Midwestern Lutheranism. Every icebreaking conversation we have at Word Fitly begins with the discussion of the weather. <laughs> also, where I live, where I live, even though a third of the American population lives within like three hours of me, is always described as out there so. or the swamp. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're just all Washington, D.C. and New York City at the same time. So Urbanites. <laughs> That's right. Well, since we are speaking from the perspective of the Midwest, let's talk about Midwestern par excellence with Walther. <laughs> Midwestern via Germany. Yes, Saxony. Excuse me. <laughs> yes, CFW Walther. Again, uh, for those listening, we are using the newer CPH edition of Walther's Pastoral Theology. So when we give any... Uh, Page numbers or anything like that, it's out of that book. It's a big maroon book available online for purchase. So preaching, guys. Preaching as a means of grace. Agree or disagree, it is a means of grace, first first and foremost. I'd give hearty agreement to that. <laughs> yes. Um, can't really be a Lutheran and, and not agree with that, but I think that people may be surprised by what Walther and Luther have to say about the subject. Right. For Lutheran Walther... Preaching is the chief means of grace, the chief of the means of grace. So what does that mean then for preaching? Well, in preaching, you have the exposition of God's word and a, a setting forth of the, the whole counsel of God. And so in preaching, being the chief means of grace, it'd be the chief way that God speaks to us and brings us to himself. I mean, would you agree with that definition or, or what? Yeah, I think, I think the, the controversial word is the word chief here simply because both the flow of the service and also what you might describe as like an accent in contemporary Lutheranism on the Lord's Supper makes people think that the Lord's Supper is maybe the chief means of grace, or maybe that's baptism, but it's probably not preaching. And I think part of that simply has to do with the relative length of sermons compared to previous ages. So like in Walther's time, a sermon is quite a bit longer than it is today. If you took one of his sermons, even translated into English, and you read it aloud in the sort of with the sort of like pauses and things like that that you would need in an oral delivery, it's going to take you a lot longer than 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And once you're getting beyond 20 minutes, you're, you're moving into, I don't know what percentage of like Lutheran churches you would estimate the pastor preaches more than 20 minutes regularly. It's probably two-thirds of this call, two-thirds of this podcast right now. 
But if you got beyond 20 minutes today, you're probably talking about, I don't know, maybe 15, 20% of Lutheran churches. So I, there's, there's a lot of things that make people probably leery about the idea that preaching is the chief means of divine grace, as Walter says so clearly. Why would Walter and Luther consider it to be the chief means? I think because they have an understanding of what Scripture is doing in the church and the liveliness of Scripture in applying itself through the appointed messenger to the people, that that can accomplish far more than any other given pastoral task. So Walther says this, which is which is really a very bold statement, and significantly preaching is really the first thing that comes after these general discussions that we talked about last time I talked about Walther of, you know, how do you get a call and stuff like that. He launches right into preaching and he says this, no matter how good a liturgist a preacher may be, so he might be, you know, a really great, you know, he might be really great at chanting and, you know, wear his vestments very nicely and have nice vestments and conduct the service in a solemn, dignified manner, no matter how skilled in governing a congregation. So that's, we probably, I think we call that leadership now, or even in exercising individual pastoral care, right? So he's visiting and he knows people and their sins are being forgiven and he's guiding people and he's very helpful and he's very conscientious. He says, no matter all of that stuff, none of this can ever replace proper preaching. This is and remains the chief means for administering the holy office in a blessed manner. So it's like indispensable. It's almost like you could be kind of lazy about your visiting. You could be not that great at administration. And you could even be not so hot at chanting. But if you're a good preacher, that will help a lot more. Whereas even if you have all of those things, those other qualifications, and you're not really preaching well, and we'll talk about how Walther defines good preaching. If you're not preaching well, it really doesn't like, it doesn't matter. And that sounds kind of shocking unless you think, okay, Walther attributes to Holy Scripture this massive, massive, massive authority. So the exposition, the explaining, the application, the illumination concerning what the divine word is and means and instructs and guides and all of that, there really can't be anything more important than the sounding forth of God's voice in his church. And that's not to say that the sermon um, and, and elevating the sermon somehow takes away from the other means of grace, like baptism or the Lord's Supper, confession and absolution. Indeed, the sermon affirms these things. We tend to want to pit the means of grace against each other when really they're meant to work in tandem. And yet one person says, I follow the Lord's Supper, and another person says, I follow the sermon, and another person says, I remember my <laughs> baptism. Personally, I, I, I'm, I'm into ordination as a sacrament. That's my, that's my little division. <laughs> well, I have a, a little personal anecdote about this, too. It kind of surprised me this past winter when, you know, shocking, we had some days where we weren't able to have church because of the weather. I know, that's hard to believe. The dog team, the, the dog sled was down. Yeah, the dogs died in the blizzard, you know, that sort of thing. But I had someone come up to me, one of my parishioners, and we were talking about just holding a brief service because only a few people had been able to make it because the weather had changed so quickly. He had mentioned that, you know, as long as we had the sermon, 
we would at least have the most important part of the service. And at the time, that kind of threw me back a little bit because, you know, I'm not, we're not used to emphasizing the sermon in this way so that even the laity look towards the sermon as kind of almost uh, one of the major highlights of Sunday. And so I think they kind of instinctively get this. And so I, I would agree with Walther, even if we don't necessarily put preaching in the position that we should, it is still the chief means because it's what connects with the lives of people perhaps the closest. Well, and even for those who would who would want to push back against us and say it isn't the chief means of grace, we need only look at the thousands of good and bad sermons that we've preserved throughout church history. We cherish the sermons of the church fathers, and a, and a Lutheran cherishes the sermons of Martin Luther or other Lutherans. So we collect these things as treasures. So even when people kind of want to push back against this notion of the chief means of grace, well, they still really do see the value in sermons. Otherwise, they wouldn't preserve, collect, study, and plagiarize. Um, <laughs> but let me ask, let me pose this question to you both, because a lot of what we're going to talk about is really what makes a good sermon. Is there a difference or if there's not, you know, what's the relationship between good preaching skills and a good sermon? A good sermon takes God's word and faithfully proclaims and applies it to his people. Good preaching skills could exist with or without a good sermon. They could, yes. they could yes. certainly assist a good sermon in that your capacity to speak convincingly, to speak eloquently, to connect through eye contact and body language with the hearers, all of those could augment the effectiveness or the staying power of the sermon. But a good sermon can exist without those things. The question for a pastor is, do you really want to see if it does? But a good sermon is different in, in that sense simply from oratorical skills which would be common to all different forms of public speaking. Do you think a measure of oratorical skill is required for the preaching office? I think if we're going to require people to know anything other than the absolute bare minimum, so for instance, that we require people to learn Greek and Hebrew in a former age, they had to know Latin in order to read the confessions and the dogmatic tradition as well. If we're going to require anything that would encourage excellence in the holy office, then we should also require oratorical skills if we are striving to do our absolute best in the holy office. If we're not, then no, you don't need skills just in order to preach a sermon. You need faithfulness. You need lots of other things. And Walther lists skills, oratorical skills, last in his list of things you need, but it's still in the list. And he explains right. why that is and where it goes and everything. We had a dear pastor who has since gone to glory uh, in this area, part of the world who was well known for dryly reading his sermons, like never looking up, that sort of thing. Oof. That that doesn't mean that they were bad. They were certainly orthodox, and he was a very he was a very faithful pastor who traveled tremendous distances, you know, all over the place, and is very remembered very fondly. But Sunday morning was <laughs> entertaining to say the least. <laughs> so so yeah, I, I agree. You can have a good sermon apart from oratorical skill, but do you really want that 
your lack of oratorical skill to get in the way, potentially, of presenting the gospel? I think it's the same sort of issue with something that is, I think, a far more common temptation to pastors, which is not to try to lack all oratorical skill, but being lacking in preparation. So it's the same thing. You could preach a sermon off the cuff in some manner. You could talk for a while. Walther mentions, you know, when you're when you're lazy and so you just you just pick a topic that you can talk about for an hour or so. <laughs> Which gives you an indication of both sermon length and also the much greater depth that you can go into when your people sort of expect 45 minutes or an hour. Nonetheless, I think I think the, a lot of these questions are questions of, okay, you could get away with this, so to speak, but why would you do that? If you sincerely believe that God has given you this task and that his word actually is his people's pasture, then why would you not try to feed them in the best, most beautiful, well-done way that you possibly could? Certainly, certainly. So the moral of the story is, Study your books, but also study your presentation as well and study how it's going to be. And you guys would also endorse returning to hour-long sermons. <laughs> uh, One step at yeah, a time. One step yeah, at a time. Me, I mean, let me, give that a, let me give that a soft yes. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it is still happening in churches in the United States. Don't forget. Yes, it is. And everyone who yearns for the heart of Africa and Latin America, they can go there right now and sit through a three-hour church service with an hour-and-a-half sermon if they'd like. So it is still present in the world. And the question is, do we have the attention span anymore to handle it? Can we wait on the, fo- on the football score, you know, 45 minutes into a sermon without checking into our phones or that sort of thing? Preaching, you know, is really affected by the world, both usually negatively. And so our sermons have tended to shorten as attention spans have shortened. And maybe they've, maybe they've become more and more short because maybe we're becoming lazy too. I don't know. But a lot of factors have led to that. Really, a short, a very, very short sermon is kind of an anomaly in church history. You have them, but as far as like main Sunday worship services, big worship services, people expected uh, longer, longer homilies, I guess you could say. And in parts of the world, they still do. I'm pretty sure you can go to any holiness church in the southern United States. And if you don't preach at least more than 30 minutes, they're not taking up a love offering. I can tell you that much. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it also depends on what on what you think a sermon is for. As we keep going tonight, I think one thing that we'll be talking about is how different Walther's understanding of what a sermon is supposed to be doing is from a lot of sermons that we hear today. And that extends to everything from content to form. So especially if there's a there's sort of a form which is at least anecdotally widespread in current American Lutheranism, where you sort of make people feel bad. That's the law portion of the sermon, and that's, you know, six minutes. And then there's like a six and a half to seven minute portion after it, which is like the gospel. And I'm, and I'm not, I'm honestly not saying this to, to mock it, even though it's certainly not something that I do myself. I don't, We'll, we'll talk about what we do and, and, and what Walther recommends doing. But that form is easily repeatable. And as long as you are exegetically rather creative, you can do that with any text or set of texts that you're given by the pericope system. So 
if that's what you think you're doing, you're essentially doing the exact same sermon with maybe different characters or different vocab or a different kind of, you know, hook, but you're basically doing the same thing each week, similar to how you do the Lord's Supper in the same manner each week, you don't need a lot more time than that. Sure. You know, maybe you only take 10 minutes to do the same thing and you just do five minutes and five minutes or something or four minutes and six minutes. So Walter greatly stresses then the importance of preaching and would say that all other tasks that the that the pastor does are greatly helped or in, or impeded by the presence or absence of proper preaching, correct? Yeah. Because everything else really falls under the rubric of what he's doing when he's preaching. So if he is not preaching the width of Scripture's counsel and also the depth of Scripture's riches, then he can't really guide them. And so all of the other things that he's doing are, are really not sort of held together and explained in terms of God's word for the people. So the, the content and the form of the sermon are huge here for what he understands preaching to be able to accomplish. We have something uh, directly from Walther on page 95, is that correct, of the CPH edition? Yeah, that's right. So, I, And I read this just a little bit earlier, but just to repeat, no matter how good a liturgist a preacher may be, no matter how skilled in governing a congregation, or even in exercising individual pastoral care, none of this can ever replace proper preaching. This is and remains the chief means for administering the Holy Office in a blessed manner. And he goes on to quote the Apology twice, it says in the article on the Mass, Article 24, there is nothing that keeps people at church more than good preaching. Then later in the article on Confession, if you want to retain the church among you, then you must strive to permit proper teaching and preaching. With it, you can create goodwill and constant obedience. So things that I think a lot of pastors would be interested in in having, you know, I say it and then people actually, you know, listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, that, that's always nice. Walther and the Apology to the Augsburg Confession are saying you attain that, that happens, that grows, and the church is well attended because of the presence of proper preaching. All right. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're going to discuss... Walther's uh, Requirements of a Good Sermon. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history, www.wordfitlyspoken.org. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, talking about Walther's pastoral theology, specifically about the preaching task. So guys, Walther lays out very clearly the requirements of a good sermon. So let's just jump right into that. Adam, do you want to take it? A sermon can only contain God's word. That may seem really self-evident, especially if you're listening to this and you are a Missouri Synod Lutheran. It seems really boring even to remark upon. I think 
Walther is guarding against one thing and what he says applies to one more thing in our own day. What he's guarding against is the idea that you need to include in the sermon wisdom from, let's say, secular sources. Walther reports on in his Law and Gospel lectures, and this did happen, that people would give sermons on things like tree cultivation and the proper way of planting potatoes. And Walther grows up in that extremely rationalistic version of the church. And I certainly heard sermons like this as an Episcopalian in what now seems like a former life. I can distinctly remember an entire sermon about why we should support fair housing policies, by which the preacher meant sort of the platform concerning public housing of the Democratic Party at at that moment in that year. So I have heard these. The thing in our present day and even in more ostensibly conservative circles would be the idea that the sermon is mostly jokes and stories, uh, mostly illustrations. Yeah, just kind of winsome platitudes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, kind of pop psychology put into vaguely biblical phraseology. So that the sermon should only contain God's word is a valid point, even if it may seem self-evident to most of us. And that's not to say it's only scripture quotes. That's not Walter's point. The point is it should be focused upon expositing the content of the word of God. That's right. And as it does that, it should also rightly divide the law from the gospel, God's demand from God's promises. Walther is famous for his 1881 lectures on law and gospel. This pastoral theology that we're discussing at great length is from 1872. So what's kind of significant is that the law and gospel lectures, which discuss what the law is and how the law should be proclaimed and to whom and what the gospel is and how not to mix these things up and you know all of that. He only talks for really about a page and a half in the edition that we're using about law and gospel. It doesn't mean that it's totally unimportant, but it does mean that he is using a framework for understanding preaching, which is much more expansive than just law and gospel. One of the things that he, that he begins with is, is a right application. Um, and what does that look like? What does it look like for Walter? What is how do, how do you rightly apply the Word of God in the 1870s? And do you think his principles are still relevant for today? I think they're relevant as long as we are comfortable with the concept of application. I mean, are you guys familiar with anyone objecting to application in sermons? Oh, I think certainly there's a there's a hesitancy on the part of certain factions. Uh, when it comes to application? Maybe only because the idea is that some people spend so much time in application that they see it as illegitimate. Would you say that's what they're arguing against? Yeah, they're, de- they're definitely arguing against something that Walther is going to argue for later on, which is what he describes as thorough instruction in sanctification. So the idea that sermons should contain definite, do this with your life, don't do that, avoid this, make sure that you're doing or or interested in or thinking about that. Those kinds of applications, which can often be dismissed by, by many modern Lutherans as just law, which is understood to be like bad. Like when you say law, you should just hear bad. So you could just say bad and gospel or rightly dividing 
bad or three uses of bad because bad fields and gospel. Yeah, bad good fields, fields. Bad right. fields and good fields. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bad fields, good fields. The bad fields, good fields distinction, which makes you a proper theologian. So <laughs> right. I think yeah, I think application gets gets a reputation as bad because there's a presumption that all instruction in God's law is bad unless it's moving you towards some kind of gospel sounding point. Well, you know, where does Walter get this idea? And it's very clear. If you're preaching the scriptures, your sermons will sound like, in theory, the sermons that you hear in scripture. And there is plenty of application in the scripture, even the words of Jesus Christ himself. Is it fair to say then that anytime Jesus admonishes us to do something or or one of the pastoral epistles, for example, admonishes us to do something, that it's only there so that we can see how we utterly fail and don't do it? Or is it actually there as a true and honest exhortation to the Christian? Well, if you're just going to say that the that kind of application is there just to show how we don't do it, well, you could do that in a lot less time, so to speak, you know, say that, okay, we fail. But rather, Paul, I mean, for example, is emphasizing that, yes, being a new creation means that we are striving towards these things. I mean, I don't see how you could read books like Philippians, for example, and feel that somehow Paul is just setting up a gotcha with the law. Right. And this is sort of one of the, the points in, through our discussion of Walter. Although we're using his pastoral theology as a sort of a framework for our discussion, we want to get, we want to be clear that he is drawing from the scriptures in his understanding of a right application or his understanding of uh, how a sermon ought to be. It's not just some kind of Waltherian dialectic approach necessarily. But if you look at the application like in 2 Timothy 3:16-17, how that's supposed to look, you know, what what are the duties of the person in the office, then you start to see this kind of picture. We're not called as preachers to merely have some kind of psychological exercise every Sunday, a 20-minute psychological exercise whereby you bring someone to a bad or a negative emotional response, build up that plateau to that plateau, and then then you have the crescendo with the gospel as some kind of balm. So it becomes like the 70s, all the seminars everybody was going to where you would kind of try to get all that negative energy out. We kind of try to do that and say, okay, I'm going to preach the law. And if I'm preaching the law correctly, people are going to feel bad and going to be convicted. And that's true. That is true. People will be convicted. But it's not for this mere exercise of saying, I have not done the law because they are sufficiently contrite. And now I will do the gospel so that they may feel good. So you slap them on one side of the face and then you caress them on the other cheek. That's not the point of preaching necessarily. And often it is sort of reduced to that. And maybe I'm being uncharitable. What do you guys think? <laughs> I I, <laughs> I I think I think that a point that Walther makes quite a bit later on is really applicable to what you what you just said because he when he's talking about sermon form and and also about tone when you are always harsh and especially I think when your harshness is predictable structurally when we know that you're going to be harsh earlier on in the sermon he actually makes up the voice of a hearer who says, you don't have to listen to the pastor. This is just how he is. Don't worry about what he's saying. And I think that a lot of the sting of God's law is actually drawn out by 
someone who wants to magnify the sting, but does it in such a predictable way and what appears to be a psychologically manipulative way that eventually people figure out that this is happening and they just tune out. I mean, you you might be up there, you know, getting red in the face about how heinous whatever thing it is you're preaching against is, but people are not listening because they know to expect it. Uh, structurally. And they also know that you're going to essentially like just say it doesn't matter right after you get done talking about why it's so awful. And Luther actually says the exact same thing when he's talking about the antinomians. And it's in uh, one of the one of the quotes that Walther has in this section where Luther says that the antinomian is preaching against, he's preaching the law and he's saying how adultery is bad and this is bad and that is bad, but it doesn't matter because Jesus has taken away sins. It just doesn't matter. Whereas Luther says that your grammar when you preach the law should be, if you want to be considered a Christian, you cannot remain an adulterer, a usurer, you know, a fraud, all this other, you know, it's a vice list. So I think the grammar of the way the law is preached, in addition to where it appears in the sermon, is really, really important. In addition to that, the scriptural passage that Walther works off of for understanding how scripture is applied in the sermon is, you know, he's assuming that law and gospel are being rightly divided. So application is not necessarily one or the other. Because his framework is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I just want to read this so that we're clear about what he's saying. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then Walther adds a fifth use of God's word from Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, that's the fifth one, we might have hope. So he's using these very clear scripture passages, and then he works off of them to build his framework for sermons. He doesn't say, here's my abstract idea of what a good sermon is, and then kind of imposes that on, you know, how preachers should be. So all that said, let's take a look at Walther's actual understanding of application. For Walther, what's the most important aspect of application? The absolute foundation of everything else and the way that God's word has to be applied before everything else and for everything else to be built upon is the didactic use or the teaching of what scripture says. So if you don't know what it says, the fact that you are emotional about it or you are trying to get people worked up about it or whatever else doesn't really matter and it might not even make any sense to them unless they understand how scripture fits together. We didn't even know that there was a Holy Ghost to quote the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely on point that if you don't have the foundation to the building, uh, how can you build anything on top? How can you actually begin to set up the walls and set up everything else? If you don't even, if you haven't even poured the concrete, we must be teachers first and foremost and teaching. Well, it may have, the, the law gospel format, it may be just more merely informative, but it is above all the, the primary act of preaching. 
Well, there, there's a distinction in the modern church that doesn't really exist in Walther's time, and that is the distinction between preaching and teaching, which, you know, as most of our listeners will know, those are synonymous in scripture, those verbs. But but right. in the modern church, preaching goes in the sermon and teaching goes in the Bible class or the adult Sunday school. And so pastors often look at these tasks as two totally different things, and they get much less worked up and nervous about Bible class, where they actually have to talk for an hour. In the sermon, they're like a lot more worried, but your responsibility to tell the truth and to proclaim God's word and to apply it really doesn't change. They're just different venues, and you can you know drink coffee openly while you're doing Bible class. For Walther, those activities are not separate. He's doing his teaching. He's showing people how Scripture fits together in the sermon. Very good. Now, the next um, important approach for Walther would be essentially using the Socratic method scripturally. (laughs) Correct? Yeah. I mean, he's... The elenctic use? Yeah. yeah. No, he's, he's using Scripture to to refute false teaching. So he's going to demonstrate in the sermon what is false. So if the passage clearly demonstrates the divinity of Jesus, the sermon will include some discussion of why Unitarianism is wrong or something like that, right? Now, it's really interesting, and this is very contrary. And I think if people are listening and they're not actually you know, they haven't really dug into the book yet. I would encourage you to do that simply because you're going to find a Walther that may surprise you. So Walther, on the basis of his photographs, is understood to be kind of a scary man. And the Missouri Synod is kind of a scary synod. And it's very intense. And, you know, we talked, I think, last time about memorizing things in Latin. But Walther is very alive to the idea of coming off as too harsh or too much. And so when he talks about the idea of refuting falsehood in sermons, he says, you do it if they're in absolute immediate danger of the teaching, right? So if you're in a congregation in, I don't know, rural New England in the 19th century, there's not that many Missouri Senate congregations in rural New England then or now, but let's say you are, Unitarianism is going to be a valid live concern for you, right? Well, hey, T.S. Eliot grew up as a Unitarian right there in St. Louis. So there you go. You could preach against Unitarianism, and maybe that would have helped T.S. Eliot even earlier in his life. But if they're not in immediate danger, you may want to do it, right? So if they don't know that something is wrong, and they've never heard of it, and there's no one around them telling them about it, you know, maybe you want to inform them, but you don't have to. If they're very weak in the faith, don't give them lots of detail about what's wrong because they don't know what's right. And he's got a great Luther quote about how you may, you may just catechize them into the heresy that you're preaching against because you're going to present it clearly. And it's the only thing they've ever heard about the subject. So Walther is very alive to how you come off as a preacher. And, you know, if you're always just complaining about things and how horrible everyone else is, it's just going to harden people against you who just think that your job, like what you enjoy in life is just complaining about everyone else. CFW Walter, actual human. You heard it here first, word fitly spoken. It is, but it is important. I mean, and this is the, 
this is one of the important things about reading books about men who actually with men who actually did this because we're dealing with human beings of all different levels and all different capacities and you have to to a certain degree meet people where they are certainly reprove when necessary admonish when necessary but never forget that you're dealing with actual human beings and you have to look them in the eye and you have to communicate effectively with them it kind of goes back to the gerberding episodes where we're saying so much that should be so obvious or should sound obvious and yet here we are you know discussing it for an hour and that is what it is but it is nice though to to realize that you know someone can be so lionized to the point of they're untouchable but Walter is very much a workman, and he is very busy in the church uh, working and and doing what he was called to do. And we certainly have to admire him for that. Yeah, and he he also said he he's similarly sensitive as he discusses the the other uses, guiding people rightly, that is rebuking their sins, training them in righteousness, admonishing them in, in how Christians should live. And, and he's very clear that Christians no longer are servants of sin, right? Just like the Bible says, but they need instruction in how to live righteously and resist sin. As you do that, you you have to know who the people are. And we'll talk a little bit more in the next segment about Walter's attentiveness to needs and attentiveness to pastoral care as you preach. And, it, and it's just the same as when he speaks about encouraging the people, that that's what scripture is for, according to Romans 15. He's got a really great line. I think that this is something for both preachers and listeners to think a lot about. He says that if teaching is the foundation of every sermon, and it's absolutely essential and you must have it, and you need to understand what the text says before you worry about anything else. If teaching is the foundation, then comfort and hope are the goal of every sermon. You want to get there. You want to be comforted in Christ. You want to have hope in Christ and be anchored in Christ and so that's where everything is going. So there's no there's no opposition between thorough knowledge of the Bible and a warm and lively piety. It's thorough knowledge of the Bible that that drives that piety. Let me ask one more question before we go to break here. If the pastor is called to reprove, rebuke and exhort and he is called to um do all of these things, how then does a pastor know what to rebuke, and what sins to preach against, and how to uh, preach to specific members or to a specific congregation. How would a pastor know? Well, the only way he can know is by getting out into his parish, only by actually doing a regular visiting, by actually conversing with his members. Is he going to learn what kind of things they struggle with, what kind of things they actually, sins that they're particularly bes- uh, that particularly beset them, Uh, So it really is a matter of getting to know your people outside of Sunday morning that will help you to be able to effectively preach to them. So would you agree then that there needs to be obviously a solid amount of time spent studying the Word of God and in prayer, as we said in many episodes before, and also a lot of time devoted to knowing one's flock? Yeah, it's absolutely essential. Yeah, I mean, you can't. And what, what what exactly are you preaching Apart from that, and I think I think something that Walther brings up many times is that when you don't know those things, right? And we're not talking about like guest preachers. That's that's 
you know, it's not your fault if you're the guest preacher or something, or you're, you're a vacancy pastor. But if you don't know the people, then preaching will devolve into either something you hate doing, or you'll enjoy it, but you'll, you'll enjoy it for the accolades. Because you don't know them, so you're just kind of preaching whatever it is that you think sounds nice or interesting or whatever. Luther describes Karlstadt, who went off the rails rather significantly. He says, Karlstadt loves to throw in Greek and Hebrew and Latin quotes, and, and everyone's impressed with him. You know, that's not preaching. That's oratory. That's not preaching. That's not a sermon. So in order to have a sermon that applies God's word to his people, you have to know both God's word and his people. Very good. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is a Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, back to talk more Walther, more pastoral theology, particularly about preaching. So, for Walther, sermons must contain the whole counsel of God. So let's jump right in, guys, and talk about sermon content according to C.F.W. Walther. He describes the pastor as a steward, according to 1 Corinthians 4, and therefore the pastor doesn't get to decide what the menu is. He brings out what the master has and what the master wants to serve. You don't get to skip over doctrines either you feel a little queasy about or you know your, especially your hearers would feel queasy about. And Walther describes withholding any doctrine of Scripture, any teaching of Scripture as inexcusable robbery. You know, that, that's basically as, as clear as one would want it to be. And remember, again, that he's not separating preaching from teaching. So there's going to be a lot of information in his sermons. I mean, you can see that if you pick up a volume of those that maybe is, is uh, sometimes lacking in a modern sermon. He's got a plan for how to do this, how to proclaim the whole counsel of God. That involves looking at the pericopes for the year. So in Walther's time, those are the epistles and the gospels, which by and large now compose what we call the one-year lectionary. They just called like the lectionary. <laughs> I don't know if that's a jab or not. I'm not sure what. But, <laughs> well, but, not just him, but everybody is. called it that because in the in the world. <laughs> I mean I mean there were there were other preaching options but that you know that was that was pretty much it. <laughs> you you take a look at that and you look at the selections and you say all right well I'm going to preach on this on this day and this on that day and whatever. And then you 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 come up with like topics. So Walther has a really fascinating list of topics that you should cover because if you don't people will not know what they should believe. Because of that, Walther says on page 110, then it can happen that through the preacher's fault that some of his hearers go dangerously astray out of ignorance. 
and he cannot boast with Paul that he is innocent of all blood. So here's here's part of his list. He says you should talk about love, church polity, the family, so specific relationships within the family, how how wives should honor their husbands, stuff like that. The binding nature of engagement, grades of relationship that hinder marriage, how to pray, usury, that's the charging of interest because a lot of people don't even know what that term means anymore. The inspiration of scripture, the nature and benefit of the sacraments, the election of grace, also known as predestination, and Christian perfection. You got to cover it all. And as I look at that list. Everybody's triggered right now at this point. Yeah, everybody's triggered. Everybody's either, I can't believe I haven't been doing this, or they're like, that's absurd. You know, I I don't think that I'm basically certain I've never talked about church polity in a sermon beyond basic relationship between pastor and congregation. But your nine part series on usury is coming up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I know for a fact that I don't think I've ever heard a sermon. I've certainly never given a sermon on the prohibited grades within marriage. Uh, That's just not a live topic anymore. (laughs) Or the binding nature of engagement. Um, Well, that should be. That's a sensitive one because the the listeners probably don't know that that was like that was a hallmark of orthodoxy in the Missouri Synod until about the 1950s. So. I mean, what what's fascinating about this is just reading that list, we've got stuff. And, and some of it, it, yeah, it could be the question, is this topical anymore, right? Like, are people in great danger of marrying, like, first cousins who are too close? In modern America, since the invention of the automobile, maybe not so much. But But the question is, why was something bad in Walther's time and he would preach against it? Did the Bible change or was he wrong or what happened? I mean, I, that, that's what's fascinating about this idea that you have to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. You can't just preach things that don't sound too old-fashioned or odd to the hearers. You have to proclaim what the text says. That's the temptation, though, when preaching the whole counsel of God, is to look at things and to simply say these are outdated customs that we need no longer talk about. Right. Some, sometimes, yeah, there are good examples of things that are just outmoded. At the same time, there are general principles which have by and large been uh, sort of cast off as far as preaching topics. They're seen as third rails, or the subjects are so obscure, even if they're good subjects, that they would communicate virtually nothing because people will think about how many of these terms that you had to just define, right? Just in the last three minutes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and he he considers the idea that like, okay, well, people aren't going to get this. So with a given congregation, you're not going to be like just rolling in your first Sunday and, and hey, let's discuss the nature of angelic beings, right? That's the sermon. It, you know, it's, it's, it's esoteric. It's a little speculative. You're not going to do that. But if something is sitting right there in the text and you're avoiding it, that is not the congregation's problem. That's the preacher's problem. I think it's also helpful because uh, Walther is emphasizing these topics and, you know, and looking forward into the year because there is a temptation, I think, also to say, well, I've done the lectionary reading, therefore I have given the whole counsel of God. Do you, do you, mean, you mean just like the bare reading? Yeah, like the, the bare reading or like, you know, I've preached on all 52 of the Gospels this year and they're they're varied enough. And there's, yeah, there's nothing more to mine from these texts when I revisit them the next year. 
So I'll just recycle, reuse, and then can avoid, you know, these these difficult passages. It is a question, like, if you only preach, for instance, and, and in Walther's time, they don't, they're, they're not preaching on Old Testament texts except as free texts. If you're avoiding certain entire genres of scripture or portions of the Bible, there is a lot that you can avoid talking about. In addition to, it's in the text that you're preaching on, but you kind of like gloss over it or don't touch it. I just, I mean, I think it's really interesting, like how, how big of a problem the Bible becomes for people really quickly <laughs> when we realize <laughs> how much it's saying about so much of our lives. It's as if Jesus himself had hard sayings and his <laughs> followers abandoned him, <laughs> hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically. <laughs> this this uh, last point here on his examples, Christian perfection. Um, let's let's unpack that a little bit. Now, Walter's certainly not talking about some type of Methodism or some type of later holiness, second work of grace, you know, completely free from sin. So what would Walter mean by Christian perfection? Yeah, it comes last in his list because it's part of his eschatology. He is talking about man perfected in glory, man living forever without sin, fully remade in the image of God, all those things that I know you guys have been talking about with David Oppold. So that is something that he believes Christians should know, what it means that they will have glorified bodies, what the resurrection of the dead is, and what eternal life will be like according to Holy Scripture. So it's just part of Scripture's counsel. Right. So we're now about to touch the actual third rail of Lutheran theology. C.F.W. Walther says a sermon must contain, or sermons must contain, the doctrine of sanctification. Yeah, they, they must, because he believes that each sermon should show the hearer clearly, whether the hearer may only hear the sermon, like that's the only sermon he's going to hear. Walther says this is particularly a problem in America. He says people live like nomads here. <laughs> and and I, I can kind of attest to that. I mean, I, I just talked to a guy the other day who said he had been to my church on Reformation Day, and there were a bunch of people, and he like ran out right away. I didn't, he didn't go through the handshake line and I didn't know he was there, but he said, Oh, I love this sermon, blah, blah, blah. It was, it was great. You know, you, you don't know who's listening to you a lot of the time, especially if your stuff is online. So Walter says each sermon needs to contain instruction in repentance, faith, and sanctification. And so there's something there for everybody. And the way in which man walks with God is laid out clearly in each sermon. And so part of that is sanctification. Walther says he does not preach who omits sanctification. He does not preach about the necessity of good works and sanctification or does not provide thorough instruction about good works, Christian virtues, and sanctification. A detailed, vivid, calm description of truly Christian life and conduct affects more than always merely affirming through threats and warnings that it is necessary. And then he's got a nice long Luther quote, something our hearers may be familiar with is Luther saying in On Councils in the Church, Antinomians, they are certainly fine Easter preachers, but disgraceful Pentecost preachers. Walther is just super clear about this. And this is something that if you go back in the Missouri Synod homiletical tradition, you're not going to find really any debate prior to the 50s or 60s of the, of the 20th century, the 1950s or 1960s. You're not going to find any debate or controversy about the idea that 
sermons should talk about good works and Christians should do good works. Yeah, because if your rhetoric is overblown, which I think is sometimes the way that we you hear the law presented, that's very easy to tune out. Yeah, that's a great point. But at the same time, if you're going to present the goal toward which we are striving, even recognizing our weakness, that would be a much greater incentive because at least we can see, yes, this is who Christ has made me to be and who he has called me to be, and therefore I can strive after that. Yeah, and I, I, I love Walther's description of detailed, vivid, calm. That's such a good way of putting the work of grace, of God's grace, of growth in grace in a Christian life. At the same time, Walther does conclude that the gospel must predominate. Now, that's something that is often discussed and perhaps often misunderstood. What does Walther mean by the gospel must predominate? If every sermon is containing sanctification, how indeed can the gospel predominate? He uses the metaphor of the justification of poor sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ without works of the law. He says that is a golden thread. So that means that if you look at the sermon as a tapestry, it's not like the entire tapestry every week is just golden threads. (laughs) But it means that there is always a golden thread in that tapestry illuminating everything else, putting everything into its proper perspective. Maybe you want to say it if you're making a really ornate tapestry, you're outlining everything in golden thread because everything is seen within the light of God's free grace in Christ. So it's not the only thing you say, and it's not the point of every, the the sole point of every single sermon, but it is present as the beating heart of everything because it's present as the beating heart of what scripture itself says. Very good. So now we have sort of the general idea of what a sermon must contain, but Walther also says that the sermon must correspond to the hearer's needs. Yep. You heard it here first. Walther is all about felt needs. <laughs> he would have undoubtedly been preaching topical sermons about having a nice sex life and managing your money. Well, that face would certainly sell those those sell books. Those of books. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to see, it's hard to see Walther um, in a, in a visual culture. <laughs> he, he really flourished in a print culture. Yeah. So what does he what does he mean by correspond to hearers' needs? This this goes back to something that we discussed a little bit earlier about knowing where people are and being able to proclaim to their level of Christian knowledge and their level of understanding. Yeah, if, if you're if you're going to be building something and you know you have to lay the foundation, you can't just start uh, willy-nilly. There you go, Willie. Bring that back in. If I could make a pun that you know rhymed with your name, I'd do that. Yeah, exactly. Someone's <laughs> name is the orange of names. <laughs> it kind of is. But my, my point is, is that you have to begin working the field where the field is. You can't just, you know, if, if you need to pick rocks, you got to work with rocks. If you need to actually start plowing, then you can start plowing. You can't let one thing get ahead of the other in terms of the order. Yeah, he's, he's also saying that when you are reproving sin, if you are reproving sin that really has nothing to do with the hearer, they're just going to tune out. Uh, they're going to be irritated. I mean, I, I can I can personally remember being accused of things by preachers that, I mean, I know I, I've never even thought about doing, but the preacher talked in a like direct second person way like you, you know, and there's a great quote, I think it's from Salomo Dialing or, or Rudelbach. It's one of the, 
you know, old Orthodox Lutheran pastoral theologies. And, and Walther relates a story of a preacher who was, he was the chaplain of this home for retired seamstresses, right? Women who, you know, sew dresses and stuff like that. And so it, it's all these, you know, very elderly women. And he preached a sermon extolling the estate of marriage and, and fervently encouraging his hearers to enter that blessed state. You know, and then it's kind of like, you know, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're done here. You know, we're just kind of living out our days. So I, I mean, I mean, I don't know if that's apocryphal. It's a great story, but it's a great example of, you know, just basically you're saying the right thing, but you're saying it to the wrong people especially reproving sin, but, but any other use of God's word, you have to know who you're talking to in order to bring it home for them. Well, and that kind of leads to Walther also contending that a sermon must be contemporary. Yeah. And this, this, this is fun because this is to me, another example of, you know, you know, don't knock it till you've tried it. If, if you're not actually reading Walther himself and you just hear that he's a citation theologian, you know, I mean, he, he does love to cite, However, he explicitly says that if you're just reading the sermons of the dead, that's not preaching. You can't just get up there and read a Luther sermon because Luther is railing in a very, very contemporary way against the Pope and monasticism and the cult of the saints and lots of other things that may or may not be at all live issues for your hearers. So in that way... Time does change. The aspects that we have to deal with are different from what Luther and Walther has to deal with. So there has to be some adjustment on the part of the preacher. So when we say contemporary, we don't mean to simply adopt a fad. We're actually kind of saying the opposite, because sometimes you're contending against the fads of the present age. I kind of made a joke earlier about the prohibited grades and stuff like that and saying like, you know, I never heard a sermon about that. But at the same time, God's word doesn't change. Just because a particular topic may not have a, a live relevance in modern America doesn't mean that the word has somehow become you know useless. It's just that the particular sins of a particular age of a particular people require particular sermons. Right, exactly. And so Walther has a, a really nice kind of balanced set of contrasts between, you know, my age is rationalistic, Luther's was, you know, superstitious. So I preach against this, right? So Walther preaches against Freemasonry. Luther didn't have to do that. Walther has to preach against atheism. Luther didn't really have to do that. Walther doesn't have to preach so much against why monasticism is, you know, not the best idea. Uh, Luther really had to do that. So he's very good on saying that the preacher is taking God's unchanging word and, and applying it in his preaching to a world which is, you know, constantly changing. And, and, and he has to be very aware of those changes. Very good. Guys, any final words before we wrap things up? I think that there's an image that I want to just leave the hearers with. It's, it's Walther's image. He talks about a preacher who preaches super well. Everyone loves it. And people are telling him how great he is. And Walther says, you know, you should really be wary of that because often great oratory is quickly forgotten and it affects nothing. And then he talks about a sermon which is delivered not with the greatest oratorical skill, but very faithfully and very pointedly and very thoughtfully. And the hearer goes home meditating quietly in his heart on what God's word is doing as it has been diagnosing 
wounding and healing his soul all simultaneously with its various uses. So that that effect of the sermon is meant to go directly to the human heart. And that's that's where Walther is trying to aim everything as he describes what preaching should be. Very good. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. Adam, thanks so much for coming again. God love you, and God bless.